This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 330 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. America's crop insurance industry, providing individualized protection on more than 330 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Regulatory policy that affects farmers and ranchers isn't confined to the Department of Agriculture in Washington. From registration and use of pesticides to the use of renewable fuels, decisions from the Environmental Protection Agency have an immediate and lasting impact on the daily operation of U.S. farms. And likewise, not all food decisions come from USDA. At a conversation last week in Kentucky, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler said food waste is a big issue for government agencies and the people they serve. Food waste is the largest single item that goes into our landfills across the country. And it's not just um, taking up space in our landfills. Our landfills are getting overcrowded. But it's wasting a valuable resource. That wasted food can either be used to feed people, it could be used to feed animals, or it could be used um, for energy. You can actually burn the, the food waste to, for energy production. So it's wasted It's wasted energy, it's wasted food that's going into the landfills. We need to do something to, to cut that back. It's estimated that 30 to 40% of the food produced here in the United States is wasted each year. Um, it's, it's billions of, of tons of, of waste that goes into the landfills. So what we did, we're working with the um, U.S. Department of Agriculture, with Sonny Purdue, and with FDA, um, our, all three of our agencies to try to come up with some new initiatives and some new ways to cut back on that waste, working with the private sector, with companies, with um, municipalities, to try to come up with new, different uses and to capture that food before it's, it's, it's sent to a landfill. A lot of food wasted with the consumer at home. Questions of food labeling or other regulations that could change that would allow that food to be used for a longer period of time. Yes, and in fact, um, Sonny Purdue talked about the fact that they have a new app where the consumers can go on uh, USDA's app and determine how long a product is safe after the best buy date. You know, best buy date is not necessarily that it's it's bad after that date. So um, they've they've developed an app where consumers can go on to their iPhone and figure out you know if if it's if it's um, you know, chicken or, or milk, you know, how much longer past the best by date can it still be used to try to avoid people from just throwing it away. But then, you know, a lot of the food waste comes from large institutions such as schools, um, hospitals, um, grocery stores, of course, restaurants. And what we're trying to do is work with those groups to either get that food sent to homeless shelters, food banks, um, soup kitchens, or if it's not suitable for people, then to send it to farms where it can be used for animals. And if it's not suitable for the animals, send it someplace to be used for energy. With regard to waters of the U.S., when the comet period ends, what's the next step? And, and what volume of comets have you received with regard to this new rule? 
I, I don't have a count yet on the number of um, comments. We usually get the comments. They usually flood in at the very last minute. And the comment deadline is April 15th. Um, for our proposal last year, just to um, repeal the old waters of the U.S., we received, I think it was around 900,000 comments. So I, I fully expect that we'll reach a million comments. Um, our next step is to review all of those comments. Uh, that's going to take a few months to review them all. But our hope and our plan is to have a final Waters of the U.S. regulation finalized by the end of this calendar year. Can you discuss how the definition of a significant nexus out of the current rule had an effect. Congressman Lucas of Oklahoma shared with me there used to be the old steamboat rule. If the steamboat could go down the body of water, federal controlled it, and if it didn't, then it was up to states. How does this rule define what should be and what should not be a water of the U.S.? Well, on the significant nexus, you know what, and that gets more to the wetlands, and what we're saying, we define um, six categories of, of, of what are wetlands, and navigable waters, um, some lakes and ponds, um, ditches that are affected by tides, there's six six clear definitions for what is a water of the U.S. And then the, the sixth one is wetlands adjacent to those other five in the definition. So instead of having an isolated wetland miles away, it has to be adjacent to. So this, it's not really a significant nexus anymore, but it's adjacency to waters of the U.S., which would then pull it into the definition. Is this new rule effective to be able to protect water and at the same time protect private property rights? Yes, we believe it does. We believe it protects private property rights and it protects water. But it's an important thing to remember is this is not the only program that we have at the federal level to protect water. We have the Safe Drinking Water Act. We have other aspects of the Clean Water Act. We have specific programs such as the Chesapeake Re um, Restoration Effort. In Florida, we have the Everglades Restoration Effort. We have Great Lakes efforts that will protect additional waterways that are important to those important estuaries around the country. This president was involved in answers with regard to renewable fuel, and many in the agriculture industry and ethanol pleased that there is a proposal now to allow year-round E15 sales. Government was closed for 35 days, and June 1st is coming. What is your goal with that, and, and how do you feel about the process thus far? Well, I think we're going to meet our deadline. Um, you know, we, had, we missed our deadline for the proposal only by a few days. Um, so I, I think we're in, in firm ground to get the, the proposal finalized by June 1st. Actually, our, our target date is May 30th, and we're going to meet that. And this will be to allow E15 to be sold year-round, as well as a few price mechanisms to help um, the rent prices, to keep those under control so we don't have wild fluctuations in the marketplace. Both with this and WOTUS, is there pressure knowing that litigation hides around the corner, the petroleum industry has said they'll wait till the final and then would likely test the court system. Can you, can you pass the test of the judiciary? I believe we can, and that's one of the, one of the tenets of all of our policies in this administration under my direction at the EPA is to make sure that everything we do will stand up in court. Um, I, I call it durability. I want to make sure that our rules are durable and that they will be upheld in the courts. And um, we don't want to just put out a regulation for regulation's sake. You know, the Obama administration, if you look at what they did on the mercury from the power plants, they knew that they went beyond the law. 
the Supreme Court eventually overturned it, and the EPA administrator at the time said, well, it doesn't matter because everybody's already complied with it. That's not the way regulatory agencies should operate. We should only put forward regulations that follow the law. And if that's and if we're successful in following the letter of the law in court decisions, then our regulations will stand up in court. Many in agriculture are very pleased that they have a chance to see the EPA administrator face-to-face. You met with farmers again this past week. You heard their comments. How important from being in this position to work closely with those from the land and those in industry? Oh, it's very important. You can't sit in Washington, D.C. in an office building and, and write regulations and write programs that affect millions of Americans without understanding what their problems and concerns are. I have to get out and meet with the farmers. I have to get out and meet with environmentalists. I have to get out and meet with everyone. Um, and that's the only way you can have good public policy is by listening to the people, understanding what the concerns are, and then putting forward sound policies. Do you feel like you can work with farmers and continue to maintain voluntary programs and achieve the goals to protect air and water? Absolutely. If we treat farmers as partners, you know, farmers want to protect the environment. They're the stewards of the land. They don't want to, they don't want to pollute the land that they, that they get their, make their living from. Um, it's it's very important to work cooperatively and as a, and in a partnership with people such as farmers. F- farmers do amazing things for the environment, and we need to learn from what they're doing and their best practices. You know, different communities around the country, different farming communities, different states will institute different pilot programs or different best practices. And what we need to do is help educate the other farmers around the country as to what the best practices are, and that's part of our role. Listening to the farmer's voice, very pleased with the new WOTUS proposal, very pleased with year-round sales of E15, if that can come to fruition. But with regard to the renewable fuel standard, very concerned about the waivers that have been granted. As a regulatory agency, you're caught on both sides. You've been challenged on both sides with regard to these waivers. Where did they come from, and how difficult is it to administer this particular area? Well, this is this is a very complicated program, and it involves both um, the, the farmers and production of ethanol, as well as the oil refiners and the and the and the um, oil companies themselves. But um, the the Clean Air Act, which is the the legislation that created the RFS program, specifically um, created a small refinery exemption program. Um, Congress at that time wanted to make sure that if we have an RFS program of promoting the use of ethanol as a homegrown fuel. Um, that we don't at the same time um, jeopardize the economic viability of small refineries. And it's very important to note that we're talking about small refineries, not the size of the parent company, but the size of the refinery itself. Most small refineries service a very small geographic area. Oftentimes they're in parts of the country like the Rocky Mountains where they're the only source of the fuel in their geographic area. So it's important that we don't have a program that um, drives those refineries out of business. Um, and you have to look at the viability of each refinery as they apply for the program. What we're trying to do under the Trump administration is provide more transparency around the small refinery exemption program. We created a dashboard on our website last fall where we publish the information about the program to make sure that everybody understands what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, for years, EPA did not implement the small refinery program, and we were sued three times, and we lost all three times. So the courts have clearly told us that we have to follow the law and that's what we're going to do. And the farmer, though, on the other stand understands that there's 15 billion gallons to be produced, and then they hear under previous administrators that 2 billion-plus gallons weren't produced and weren't reallocated. Is there a way for those waivers that are granted 
to have other refineries make up for the void? Not really. I'm not the way the program is set up or operates on, and under the under the law. Um, you can't just reallocate them. And if and if you think about it, if we start reallocating back to other refineries, then you'd have additional smaller refineries then start having the economic hardship because they'd have to pick up more of the more of the slack. So you just have a cascading effect. But um, what's important, what we're trying to do to, to make sure that we get closer to the 15 billion gallons under the statute is going to E15 year-round. We're trying to open up new markets for ethanol. So by, by allowing E15 to be sold year-round, that should um, increase the amount of ethanol that's used. If the U.S. is able to export more ethanol, how will that affect rents? Well, that and that's another that's another example. We certainly um, encourage the export of ethanol, and that will also help on the on the on the production and on the meeting the 15 billion gallons. Stepping just a little further uh, away from the issue and something that's in headlines today, and this is a debate about science. The Environmental Protection Agency, before your tenure, said that glyphosate is safe for farmers to use and not likely to cause cancer. But yet, we have seen cases as late where another judge and a group of peers have suggested that it may well have an awarded damages. Is the EPA's regulatory review process on trial in the court of public opinion here, and, and how frustrating is it to deal with, with issues like this now that are so important for farmers? It is it is frustrating. Um, we are taking, you know, as, as we look at all of our pesticides that we that we register and and allow in the commerce, we are taking a look at glyphosate. It's I believe on a three year track for for review right now. And we always look at the up of the new emerging data and research. Um, but glyphosate has been looked at by a number of countries. It's been looked at by a number of organizations, and. Um, the, the cancer claims um, have not been substantiated by uh, by a lot of other bodies that have looked at glyphosate. So it's it's something that we do take seriously, and we're continuing to look at the most recent data and the most recent science. Um, and we have to make some judgment calls on on what is safe and what's safe for the American consumer. Do you have to go back and review it, or can you stand on the science you have? Well, we're constantly reviewing science as we get it. It's you know, science is not static. Um, there's new developments in science all the time. So we're always going to try to look at the most recent science, the most up-to-date science, as we review all of the pesticides. With regard to the dicamba-resistant crops and being able to use that product now, it's been important for farmers across the country. How do you feel you are at this stage, and what do you see for seasons to come? We're still reviewing the, the dicamba data. Um, you know, last year we had to make a decision on whether or not to renew the registration for dicamba for another year or two. Um, we had to make that decision prior to having all of last year's crop data in because we had to make the decision early enough so the farmers could plan to whether or not they're going to be using it this year. Um, so what we decided to do was allow um, dicamba to be used for two more years while we collect more data and information. At the same time, we also updated the warning labels on dicamba to provide more um, structure as far as when we you can use dicamba uh, during the growing season and the amount of um, area between crops um, so that it was try to reduce the amount of drift that you get when you use dicamba. And we're reviewing the data and science all the time. Finally, it seems that climate change is working its way closer to the top with headlines and most likely may be an issue in the race for the White House in 2020. As the administrator of EPA, what guidance do you offer for those who would come in with heavy hands or want to make dramatic changes to, to the country and, and to our energy use? 
That's that's a great question, and that's not an easy answer. Um, first of all, we are moving forward on reducing CO2. Um, we have our ACE proposal, which reduced electric power CO2 34% below 2005 levels. We're moving forward with our CAFE standards for automobiles, which will also reduce CO2. It, but, you know, climate change is a 50 to 100-year problem. There are adaptation things that we could be doing now. There's more resiliency that we could be doing, and we are doing that. But at the same time, we have other environmental issues, and I'm afraid that some of those issues have gotten shortchanged because of the, the the single focus on climate by so many people. Water, for example, I believe is a bigger environmental issue in the world today. We have 1,000 children, according to the United Nations, 1,000 children die every single day in this world because of a lack of drinking water. And that's a problem that we know what the technology is to solve it. We don't have the international will to solve that problem. What I'm hoping to do is elevate that issue so we can provide more assistance and help. And I'm not just talking about providing funding to other countries, but providing technology and the know-how. And, and we have a lot of experience here in the United States on different um, water financing um, opportunities. Some of those experiences can maybe be taken by the World Bank or the United Nations and used to help try to provide new infrastructure in countries where you have a 1,000 children dying every single day. Can agriculture be a part of the solution for climate sure, change I, I and carbon sequestration? Sure, it can be um, in carbon sequestration, for example, and carbon sinks. Absolutely. And, you know, the, there's certainly different practices that farmers can use to help uh, mitigate against climate change and CO2 production. And, you know, farmers, you know, I've found over the years to be true stewards of the land and wanting to do the right thing. Mr. Administrator, we thank you for being a part of Open Mic. It is Open Mic. You get the last word. I, I just It's great to be here in Kentucky today and meet with so many farmers. I met with farmers all across the country. And wherever I go, I'm, I'm just impressed with the knowledge and, and the depth of concern for the environment that our farmers have. Our thanks to EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.